Well, what I want to do tonight is uh, I changed gears a little bit from what I was going to do. With Easter coming up, I just I have to focus on uh, Easter subjects. Um, yeah, something's popping. I don't know what that was. Can y'all hear that? Sounds like bubble wrap. Um, with Easter coming up next Sunday, I really wanted to focus on an Easter topic, okay? And we've already done the case for the resurrection, if y'all were here when we did that on the apologetics. So I'm not going to do that, but what I do want to do is I want to talk about um, a subject that has been hotly debated for the entire 20th century, and that is um, the question of where did the origin of a resurrection come from? In other words, Christianity began. Did it begin as a Jewish movement or did it begin as a Gentile movement? What would y'all say? It's beginnings. What were the disciples? What what was the Jewish? Yeah. Um, and so you saw that the origins of Christianity were Jewish um, until, of course, you had the the uh, Rome's destruction of Jerusalem beginning in 66 A.D. to 70 A.D. Then you had what was called the Diaspora, which is the scattering of the Jews. They were scattered all over the Roman Empire. At that point, that's when you really begin to see uh, Paul prior to that going out and doing missionary work to the Gentiles. The Jews get scattered. They lose kind of their, their focal point of worship through the temple. And you begin to see kind of a Gentile influence at that point. But the initial beginnings of Christianity, it's very important to recognize this, it began as a Jewish movement. Now, when I say that's important, why is that important to understand? when you're trying to understand the origin of a resurrection, that it began with Jews. What's significant about that? What's that? Okay, number one, they have to somehow reconcile these concepts. He said the Messiah. I'm going to kind of expand on that a little bit. Um, I'm, I'm assuming you were going to say what I'm about to say. Um, you have to reconcile as a Jew this notion between the coming of a Messiah who the Jewish mindset was to do what, according to the Jews? The Messiah would come for what purpose? What's that? To conquer. To finally bring a political, religious kingdom on earth. Right? So when John the Baptist shows up and he says, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That message now was a revolutionary message to the Jews because they were what they were hearing John the Baptist say was, all of the centuries and centuries of oppression and dominion that have been over us are about to be wiped away. We are about to have our own political kingdom. Um, we're, gonna, we're, we're now going to rule the world, you see. So now Jesus comes on the scene, and Jesus does these incredible miracles. So what do these miracles seem to be, what do they seem to be proving to the Jews? What are they proving to them? What are they associating with these miracles? Yeah, he's the conqueror. This guy has power over nature. Give me a nature miracle Jesus did. What's that? Calming the sea. Walked on water. Yeah, he had the power over nature. He had power over disease, right? Although, I mean, he healed leprosy. He had the power over blindness, the power over the death. Uh, and he had the power, more importantly than those, over what? Over death. He could raise the dead. Give me somebody he raised from the dead. Lazarus, he could raise the dead. And, more importantly than those things, those are all on a physical level, he also had the power to forgive sins. Right? And they were absolutely appalled that Jesus could possibly say, your sins are forgiven. 
We're the ones who condemn you. They have gone. Neither do I condemn you. Well, who are you to condemn me in the first place? Right? Jesus spoke with this authority that was unprecedented at his time. So here's this messianic figure that they're expecting, and yet Jesus comes and he says, Tear down this temple, and what? And in three days I'll rebuild it. Huh? And what did they hear? What did they think he was talking about? The building. How could that possibly be, Lord? It took 80 years to build this thing. And you're going to raise it in three days? Or he looks at Peter and the disciples, remember, and he says, they're going to take me, they're going to kill the Son of Man, right? I'm going to die. I'm going to rise from the dead. I'm going to rise again. I don't even think they heard that part. All they heard was what? <laughs> they're going to kill me. That's right. And it totally blew their categories. Uh, remember, just to kind of really drive this nail further, you remember after Jesus died, you remember the guys on the walk um, to Emmaus? The two men walking to Emmaus? Remember that? What type of condition were they in? What was their emotional, spiritual condition at the time? What's that? Beat down. Things had gone bad, right. They were utterly depressed because what just happened? They lost the Messiah. This is the conqueror has been, has been conquered. You see? They are a perfect picture of just exactly what the Jews at that time expected to come. And Jesus says, uh, why are you so sad? And they say, have you not heard? Heard what? Where are you from? And He says, tell me. And then they say that they're, they're sad that the one they thought was the one that was to come to bring deliverance has been killed. Remember? And then Jesus reveals Himself. And you remember what it says that Jesus did after that? What did He do for them? He went and ate with them, but what did He do? All night, what did He do? He explained all of the Scriptures that foretold of Him. Could you imagine that? Having pasta and garlic bread with Jesus all night long and he's just telling you from Genesis all the way to Malachi. He's telling you everything about that, that foretold of his coming. See? And Jesus was saying, Listen, you saw me as the one that was to come to conquer. That's not my first coming. What is that? That's my second coming. It's like that bumper sticker. He's coming back, but this time he's mad. Right? You ever seen that bumper sticker? Yeah. This time he's mad. He's, he's ready uh, to judge the living and the dead. He's ready to finally deal with Satan and his minions, you see. But the first coming, he's coming as the suffering servant. When I say that, you immediately think of what text? In your Old Testament. The great suffering servant text. Where is that? See, that's why you're at the point. You learn that stuff here. Isaiah 53. The great chapter of the suffering servant that he would come and he would offer himself up. He would be pierced through for our transgressions. For the iniquity of us all, he would give up his life, right? Um, and so that was his first coming. So he explained that to them. And like we said uh, last week, or I'm sorry, the week before last, one of the amazing things Jesus did to prove who he was is, is he came back for how long? For 40 days he came back. And he came back, remember what we said, what was the main reason that Jesus probably came back for to prove that he had risen, and for 40 days, he knew 
that the inertia that was going to be required to overcome all of the resistance barriers in that culture were going to be so great that he would have to do something that would build the faith of these people so dramatically that they would, that they would be able to endure what was going on. So, coming back for 40 days, that would probably do it. And it convinced the first century followers who saw Jesus that, in fact, we're going to lay our lives down for him. Isn't that good? So, here's the question. Where did the Jews get this idea, these early Jews, of a dying and rising Messiah, this idea of a resurrection? Critics for years taught that that was a later Christian embellishment, that Christians later embellished the resurrection, that that wasn't an original teaching of the New Testament. That was something that Paul later really embellished. um, But Jesus never taught it. The early followers never believed it. It was something that they that they created in order to help people then endure the sufferings that they were going through. But we're going to see, and what I want to do tonight is I want to show you the Jewish background information. That um, it's kind of like the soil that you would plant these seeds in. It was the soil that the resurrection blossomed out of. It wasn't something that all of a sudden the New Testament authors said resurrection and Jesus just does something that was unheard of in the Jewish mindset. There actually are allusions to it in your Old Testament, this idea of resurrection. It's interesting, if you read your Old Testament, there's not much said about hell, and there's not said much much about heaven. Um, uh, That's a developed theology that comes much later, um, especially in the New Testament. But, uh, but, But it is there. There is a sense of the idea of resurrection. Now, before we move into our first text, let me ask you this. There's the distinction that scholars make between the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. You guys ever heard that distinction? The Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. What do you think that that means? What does that distinction mean? In other words, they divorce those two. There's the Jesus of history and there's the Christ of faith. good. Right. So, so the, the man Jesus is the Jesus of history, of which critical scholars say we don't have much access into. This is the life of a person who wrote nothing down, who now you're telling us we have to come up with this life of this man 2,000 years ago. And so what they say is the Jesus of history doesn't really matter. One, we don't have real access to it, which we would dispute, but I'm not going to spend my time on that right now. But they're saying that there's, the Jesus of history doesn't really matter. What really matters as a Christian is what? The Christ of faith. Meaning, um, Christ um, as Savior, as living Lord, whatever that may mean. Do you believe that by faith? Is that something that is part of the living faith of your life? And that's all that matters. And they strip the Jesus of history from that and say, that doesn't matter. Now, do you agree with that, that the Jesus of history doesn't really matter with the Christ of faith? Now, why, why would you disagree with that? Why does it matter? Why does that matter? Why does the Jesus of history have to be connected to the Christ of faith? Okay, so number one, the prophecies and the foretellings of the life of Messiah 
were fulfilled in Christ, and so there's a historical connection to this Christ figure. Uh, that's good. So you would connect it to predictive elements of prophecy. Uh, okay, good. So she would connect it to prophecy. Why else does it matter? Okay, awesome. And why was it important? She made the point because he became a man. Now, why is that important? Matt, why is it important that Jesus had to become... That's what you get for talking. I'm going to... Yeah. Why is it important that Jesus become... And you're next. Um, why is it important that Jesus had to be, become a man? Which is what value to us? That's right. Perfect. So he became a man because he had to be fully man to fully represent us. If Jesus was only half man, could he stand before the Father and say, Father, I fully represent Kevin. I fully represent Walter. Could he do that? Not at all. That's why Hebrews can say, he has been tempted in all things as we have, yet what? Yet without sin. See, if he wasn't fully man, could he truly be tempted in all things as us? No. So, the Jesus of history is fundamentally important in order to connect it with the salvation work that he accomplished. See? He had to live the perfect life that's required of us. And how are we doing? Trish, how'd you do this week, living the perfect life? Did you do so-so? That's, more, that's better than me. I wish I could say so-so. Mine's more like so Yeah, he, he lived a life that we couldn't live uh, because the perfect requirement of God is perfection. And none of us can abide by that. So Jesus had to fulfill the perfect, uh, he had to fulfill the law because we could not fulfill the law. Remember Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law, not to abolish the law. So you have to connect the Jesus of history with the Christ of faith because salvation, the cross, predictive prophecy, which is, history pointing towards the Savior. All of these things are interconnected. All right? Now, you may not know much about that distinction, but trust me, it's all over the place. Newsweek, Time Magazine, during Easter, if you read the articles on Jesus, you're going to see usually about 70% of the people that they quote who embrace this distinction between the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith and that that distinction doesn't matter. Well, I beg to differ. The New Testament claims as Jesus said to, the, to, to, uh, to Cleopas on the way to Emmaus, that he told them, he taught them everything that foretold of him. How does Jesus view history in the Old Testament? He views it as a, uh, with continuity, doesn't he? There's continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. All right, It's not history. We don't have access to it. So throw it aside. We don't need it. I just got to believe by faith and that's it. History absolutely does matter, okay? And I want to make that point because we're about to look at the Jewish background information as to where did this idea of resurrection come from? Did God give them any sort of hints of resurrection along the way? And I'm just going to share just a handful of passages. So if you have your Bibles, and I know you do, uh, our first text I want to look at is the oldest book in your Old Testament. What is the oldest book in the Bible? Is that book of Job. That's right. Go to the book of Job. 
it was most scholars believe was written before Genesis, um, before all of the prophets. First book of your Bible, right here, Job. And if you look in Job, in chapter 19, you'll see an interesting phrase here that Job has. We have a wonderful hymn that this comes out of. And here, here's how it goes. Job 19, verse 25 and 26. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. Does that sound like a hymn we sing? There it is right there. I know that my Redeemer lives. And that in the end, He will stand upon the earth. What does that mean, by the way? In the end. What does in the end mean? Yeah, it means that when God's plan is consummated and the plan of God comes to fulfillment, okay, that my Redeemer will stand. He will be the one that will rule. So you've got from the very beginning, I mean your first book in your Bible, this early seed form idea that number one, my Redeemer lives, which presupposes what? Huh? He dies. That's right. And that there's something that He lives forever and ever. And secondly, if there's a Redeemer, what else does that presuppose about me? I need one. Amen? I don't know about you, but I needed one today. I'm going to need one when I go home tonight. My Redeemer lives, see? And He's going to stand. And in verse 26, And after my skin has been destroyed, don't you love that language? What does that mean? Yeah, died and decomposed. It's the idea of, of, of death and burial and decomposition of the body. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, what? I will see God. What is that? It's the idea that His flesh, the same skin that decomposes, yet in my flesh, I will see God. That there will be a reconstitution of my body and my spirit someday and that I will see God. That we are meant to see God as embodied creatures. Uh, I don't know about you, but when I grew up, I grew up in the Greek Orthodox tradition and I always had this impression, even though it's not taught by them, but it's just the church I grew up in. I always had this impression that when you died, that you were just kind of this floating soul that just kind of hovered and just kind of sang these weird tunes. Uh, I remember hearing Amazing Grace. Um, How sweet the sound. Uh, When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, there's no less days. How's it going? Yeah, I thought, 10,000 years and we haven't even begun and I'm just going to be a hovering soul. I don't want that. Who wants that? And I just had this weird sense that the body dies because I'd go to a funeral and I'd see it in the in the coffin there, casket, and and, and they've departed to be with the Lord. What's there? See, and Job says early on, no, 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 my flesh will see him. See, I will be with my Redeemer someday. Isn't that good? All the way from the beginning here in the book of Job, you see that. Now, don't, don't go there because I don't want to, but I want to show you two what are called resuscitations. A resuscitation is after a body dies and then is raised. There's one in 1 Kings 17 and there's one in 2 Kings 4. In fact, let's just look at the first one. Go to 1 Kings 17. So go 
to your left. 1 Kings 17. Y'all there? Verses 17 to 24 is where the text is. This is the widow of Zarephath where God blesses her, gives her a child, and then all of a sudden the child gets sick. Remember? The child gets sick and the child dies. Verse 17, Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Do you come to remind me of my my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times. And cried to the Lord. So the picture is this. The picture is he lays the child out and he stretches himself out on the boy's body. Probably like this. Just like in the form of probably like a cross almost. And three times he cries out to the Lord. And he says, O Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child, carried him down from the room into the house He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Beautiful picture here of death and coming back to life. Now, this isn't resurrection, okay? Because when we say resurrection, what do we mean by that? What is resurrection? What's the difference between a resurrection and a resuscitation? (laughs) About three days? Yeah. Well, Lazarus was in the tomb four days. Was he resurrected? Careful, no. He was revived. He was resuscitated. A resuscitation or a a revivification, revivification, there you go, um, is where you're brought back to life and you die again. It's a bad deal. A resurrection, biblically, is when the body receives its spiritual body. It's the body of Jesus. There's only been one in your entire Bible where there's been a resurrection. And that was Jesus when he comes back. And what was the body of Jesus like when he came back? It was, it was flesh, but it was an incorruptible flesh, wasn't it? Jesus could do crazy things. He could walk through an upper room door. He could go through a tomb. Uh, Jesus' body was different. It was, the, it was the, the, uh, the renewed body. It was the body that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians where he says, For the seed dies in the ground and then comes it's it's birth anew right the same seed that goes into the ground comes alive it's the same seed Jesus' body died and through resurrection it raises anew that's why the New Testament can say that Jesus' resurrection he was the first fruits from the dead he was the firstborn of the dead what does that mean that means nobody else did it besides Jesus Jesus alone had the authority to give himself the first resurrection body. He was the first fruits. He was like a deposit of things to come for everyone after him. Y'all see that? But what we see here is an anticipation in Jewish thought that when you died, you're, you didn't merely die and go to the grave, go to Sheol. You actually died and 
you could be revived. There could be a, uh, a coming alive again. Let me show you another one here. Um, go to Ezekiel 37. Go to your right. All these wonderful books that we haven't looked at yet. Ezekiel 37. Now, unfortunately, this chapter, uh, if you've had much interactions with the Latter-day Saints, unfortunately, they really butcher this chapter up. Um, and I'll show you what I mean by that. 37. We're going to specifically look at verses 7 to 10. But I want you to see here verses uh, beginning in verse 1. Ezekiel prophesies. He says, The hand of the Lord was upon me and brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley, and it was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. What's that sound like? Sounds like a body coming back to life and the Lord breathing life into this body, right? So I prophesied, verse 7, as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, and there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the, to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the Lord, the sovereign Lord says, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to my life, they came to life, and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Isn't that good? You guys ever see that section before in Ezekiel? Now, you know what Ezekiel's talking about here? Uh, he's talking about at this time that something happened in the nation of Israel that was tragic. Uh, in the 10th century B.C. And it was under Jeroboam and Rehoboam. What happened at that time? Do you remember? Uh, that came not long after. It was the divided kingdom. That's right. It was the division of the kingdom. Remember? It left the hands of Solomon, went to his son, um, Rehoboam, and there was division in the kingdom. And so now you had Israel and Judah separate. And what Ezekiel is saying in the Valley of Dry Bones is he says... And he actually interprets it later if we went on. He talks about that what this is, is God taking these dry bones across the valley and he's bringing them back together again. That there would be a unified people once again. See, uh, Later, I think Paul talks about this when he talks about there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, that we're all one in Christ Jesus, that there's a unity that will come ultimately. But that's what this is about. It's about the reunification of God's people. Y'all with me? But what's the imagery that's being used? It's the imagery of resurrection, right? The valley of dry bones and a vast army rising and the breath of God coming back into them and it's the body and the breath of God coming together. Isn't that good? Right there. So here's another image that we have of resurrection. Look at um, 
Daniel 12.2. Look at Daniel 12.2. Go to your right one book. This is probably the clearest text that we have. Daniel 12.2. He says, he's talking about the end times. Daniel says, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. So you see that those who sleep, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. So what's this teaching? This is teaching the Jewish conception of death and afterlife. That at death, the body goes into the ground, it turns to dust eventually, and that there's a sense where the soul is awaiting a judgment to come. And they'll come back to life um, and some to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting contempt. So what's this teaching? It's actually the clearest teaching in your entire Old Testament on this. What's that? Judgment. It's the clearest teaching in your Old Testament on the final judgment of God right here. Some to everlasting contempt, some to everlasting life, but the ones that will stand before God are those who fell asleep, their bodies turned to dust, and they will awake. How will they awake? What will God do? He will take the valley of dry bones. He will take all that decompose, and somehow God will bring that body, every molecule together from that body, and He will breathe life back into it, and we will be embodied creatures standing before God awaiting the final day of judgment. So, you've got it in Job, we looked at. You've got um, resuscitation in Kings. Uh, you've got Ezekiel, the Valley of Dry Bones. It's a picture of at least resuscitation, if not resurrection. You've got clearly here resurrection, because it's an everlasting body now, right? In Daniel 12, too. Uh, let me show you one more here. Isaiah. Go to your left, to Isaiah. 26. This is when Vacation Bible School really pays off. So you learn those books right there. Isaiah 26, 19. We'll begin in verse 18. And Isaiah here says, We were with child, we writhed in pain, but we gave birth to wind. We have not brought salvation to the earth, and we have not given birth to, to people of the world. But your dead will live. Their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust, wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. Pretty good. Another pretty clear reference there that the dead in the ground, they will rise. The earth will give birth and there will be life given. I'm just not sure where these critics who argue that nowhere in your Old Testament did you see a picture of resurrection and where they got that from because there's so many instances here. Granted, it's not a fleshed out theology, but there's multiple allusions here. Now, let me show you what I think is the greatest one. It's in Isaiah, so we can stay where we are. And it's in Isaiah 53. It's a great place to end as we approach Easter. Isaiah 53. Wonderful chapter of the suffering servant here. Look what he says here. Just to kind of give you the background on the suffering servant, he says this, verse 2, beginning in verse 2. 
Uh, notice the pronoun. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. So those wonderful pictures of Jesus with his bright blue eyes and the blonde flowing hair. Um, not so sure that's, a, that's accurate. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Is that true? Was that true? This is 750 B.C. Seven centuries before Christ came. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. How did it bring us peace, the punishment that was upon him? What kind of peace? Peace with who? Peace with God. Remember Romans 5.1, Therefore, we have peace, having been justified by His blood. Right? That's the peace that we have. He goes on, verse 6. We all need to say amen on this one. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Amen? And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Or should He have laid it? On the sheep who have gone astray. See the contrast there? We like sheep have gone astray, each of us to our own way. But the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all on Him. See? What's the, what's the theological term there? It starts with an I. The doctrine of I, M, P. That's why you're at the point. See? You don't know this stuff. Huh? Imputation. That's right. It's the doctrine of imputation. What does the doctrine of imputation mean? Not just He took our sin, but what else? It's an exchange. He took our sin and He gave us His righteousness. Right? It's the imputed righteousness of Christ. It's not earned by us. It's not merited by us. It's simply given. Right? He became sin that we might receive the righteousness of God. Right there. There it is right there. We like sheep have gone astray, and He takes the iniquity of us all upon Himself. Alright, we're, we're almost to the resurrection verse. Hang on. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. What do you think about right away when you hear that? Standing before Pilate. Remember, He would not open His mouth. On the cross, did He ever look down on anybody and spit at them? My daddy will get you. Never said anything like that, did He? Did not open His mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Can you think of the word lamb in the New Testament? It speaks of Christ. Where is it? First place. John one twenty nine. Behold, the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. Isn't that great? See, all the New Testament is is a continuity of your Old Testament. He goes on and he says, he was cut off from the land of the living. See that in verse 8? The middle of verse 8? What's the land of the living? More specifically, he was cut off from the land of the living. To a Jew, what was the land of the living? Where was life found? To a Jew. In Israel. 
specifically in Jerusalem, but it was Israel. It's the chosen people of God. So what does it mean he was cut off from the land of the living? What would happen? What would the Jews do? Would they accept him or would they reject him? Yeah. Would they just send him out or would they kill him? Kill him. They cut him off, see? He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. Is that true? Who did he die with? Thieves on both sides. And with the rich in his death. Help me. Nicodemus' tomb. Actually, no, not Nicodemus. Joseph of Arimathea. It was his tomb. He was wealthy. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, check this out, you ready? Here it is. He will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. How is that possible? He's going to be cut off. He's going to be killed. The Lord will be pleased to crush him, yet he will see his offspring and prolong his days. How is that possible? Resurrection. He will conquer death. He will conquer sin. He will see his offspring. Who are his offspring, by the way? Yeah, look around. All of us. He sees his offspring. He prolongs his days because he's alive. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Isn't that good? What a great chapter. This is a chapter that, as many of you know, wonderful chapter. If you've got friends who are Jewish, this is a great place to take them. Say, could you go to Isaiah 53 and just explain that to me? What in the world is Isaiah talking about here? Now, I'll tell you what they'll say if they're somewhat sophisticated. Here's what they're going to tell you. Anybody know what they're going to tell you? Who is the he, the pronoun here that it keeps referring to? Anybody have any idea? Well, here's the point. Kidding. All right, enough of that. The he, they say, is a, re- is a personal pronoun that is meant to refer to the nation of Israel. That it's talking about the suffering of the nation of Israel. Now, think with me out loud for a minute, okay? Someone tells you that, and they tell you that all of this that we just read is actually about the suffering of Israel, not the suffering of the Messiah. What would you say from this text would be a problem with that interpretation? Charlie Holton, you got one? What, what do you think? You're a seminary boy. What would you say was the problem with that? Any ideas yet? You want to you think a little longer? Sorry, I didn't mean to call you out loud on that, man. I saw you amening me there, so I thought you knew where I was going. You must have been thinking about me, Casina, or something. What's that? What about it? Good. Bingo. That's great. You hear what she said? What do you do with the the part that talks about the transgressions of all these people would fall upon him? Since when did Israel ever become a nation that was supposed to atone for all the transgressions of the world? That was never the idea. If anything, what would happen? Israel would be on top of all of their oppressors, right? And their king would rule. They wouldn't uh, atone for it, take on the sins of the nations upon themselves, would they? That's right, exactly, that's right. Later on, if you continue to read, you'll see that there is a place that Israel believes that they had that 
they would be the nation that would be literally the light of God. And all nations would look to them. So this idea that they would be a suffering servant nation who would take upon the sins of the world, uh, I don't see that at all. And that whole idea about they did not open their mouth, want to bet? <laughs> I mean, that's all they did is open their mouth. What does that mean? Right? So it doesn't make a lot of sense, really, to say that this is Israel. But does it seem to align hypothetically if you said, huh, I wonder if this is the Jesus of the New Testament. Does it seem to align with them? Sure. I mean, all those things about he was buried with the wicked and in the grave of the rich. I mean, what is that? How is that Israel? So this is one of the most explicit passages. But more than that, that you see that he will see his offspring and prolong his days. That There's something about this individual that will have a heritage of people that follow this person. Now, that's the Jewish background information. By the way, you also have just one last point on this. In the news, you guys have seen a lot of these things about these ossuaries. Have you guys heard about that? What's an ossuary? We've seen enough of this in the news. Anybody know what an ossuary is? Yeah, it's a bone box. That's right. And it was practiced between about 50 B.C. and 50 A.D. for about 100 years in particular where the Jews would take they would bury the dead, and one year later they would go and exhume the bones from the ground, and they would put the bones in an ossuary, which is like a limestone box, and they would put them in this box. Now, why would they put them in the box? Why would they go one year later and exhume the bones and put them in a limestone box? What was the purpose of that? What's that? Well, maybe that might be part of it, yeah. It was, it was an act of preservation, Right. They were seeking to preserve the bones of individuals for the day of, of, of the general resurrection. Daniel 12.2. That when finally the bones came to life, that God could get them right there. They're already preserved for you in the box. Isn't that nice? They're already tagged and marked. And uh, that way God doesn't have to do any more work than He's got to do. Alright? Uh, but that was the idea. But again... Let's get past that and ask the question. The fact that they would make ossuaries, boxes, to preserve the bones of the dead is another example of what? Belief among the Jews. Resurrection. The question was, when was it going to happen? And this is what I'm going to conclude with. And one of the most um, perplexing aspects of Christianity being a Jewish movement is that there was no conception in Judaism. Nowhere. None of the passages we looked at tonight, and I think I've looked at pretty much all of them that have to do with resurrection or resuscitation. There's no passage in your Old Testament that shows that a resurrection body would ever occur in the middle of history before the end of the world. Daniel 12.2 is about the end of the world. That the bodies remain in the grave and that the final judgment comes at the end, and resurrection would happen at the end. So, for Jesus to come and die, and now to have proclaimed that a resurrection has occurred in the middle of time, in the middle of history, right, from an individual. It wasn't even the general resurrection that the Jews believed in, of all would rise. A single individual would rise for the resurrection body in the middle of history. That was absolutely foreign to a Jew. 
So you remember those resistance barriers we were talking about last two weeks ago? About what they had to overcome? That was one of the, that was one of the biggies. That to a Jew, to proclaim a resurrection from the dead from an individual um, in the middle of history, and not, not only that, but that the Messiah is the one who died, that was such a barrier to overcome. Did they overcome it? Not among all the Jews they didn't. But you had several thousand believe. And then you had Christianity quickly become a Gentile movement after that. But the point is, if anybody ever asks or wonders, how did Christianity come up with this notion of resurrection? They just made that up. Well, you can say, no, no. There's multiple passage here, passages here in the Old Testament that are, in a sense, foreshadowings or they set the soil for this idea of resurrection so that when the New Testament authors come who are Jewish, except for Luke, you now see that they are writing from a background of information. Okay, y'all with me? Any questions or comments on any of that we covered? Nope? So, whenever uh, we wrap it up, whenever we talk about the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith, which we brought about earlier, talked about earlier, does the Jesus of history matter? Yes, because he is connected. His body is absolutely essential to the plan of God for resurrection because the body was essential to the Jew. Right? Do you all see that? This idea of the bones rising, right? That idea is absolutely essential to the plan of God. Jesus was simply the first fruits of that. And so we have this continuity between body, soul, death, the reuniting of body and soul, and you now have a resurrection, or what Paul calls the spiritual body, forever and ever who will dwell with him. And that's what Easter season is about. It's the celebration of the first fruits from the dead he has conquered for us.